Welcome to How Not to DM. I'm your host, Derek. Thanks for joining me on my quest to interview the very best dungeon masters on this plane of existence. Before we get started, I need to shout out my patrons. Matthew, Garrett, Brenda, Jeff, Tavernot, Paul, Justin, Fernando, Jeff, Carol, and Matt. You helped make the show possible. Thank you so much. If you'd like to support the show, want a shout out on my next episode, or want an inside scoop on my upcoming guests, consider joining. You can find the link in my episode notes, my link tree, or by heading to patreon.com slash hn, the number two, DM. And as always, 10% of the money I bring in from supporters like you and from my ads will go to Encircle. Check out more about Encircle in my link tree below. And now onto this episode's guest announcement. Dungeon Maestro Kyle and his family and friends have just finished their final episode of Bombarded, an actual play podcast focused around three bards and their experience from getting into bard school to saving the world in which they live. Bombarded is an incredibly well-made and unique show, and I highly recommend it to everybody. But at the center is Kyle, creating the story, steering the chaos, and having a blast doing it. I had so much fun with this one, and I hope you enjoy it too. Well, I got into D&D probably about 13, 14 years old. My older brother, uh, Robbie, he moved back from Oregon. He was living up there, came back down to Texas, and stayed with us for a little while before uh, going to a community college nearby. And that's when he brought back D&D. And I knew he had played role-playing games. Like, he played, like, Final Fantasy VII on, like, you know, the SNES and everything back in the day. So... There was that aspect of fantasy that games that he played that I always wanted to wanted to play, but we're like seven years apart. Yeah. So that dynamic growing up didn't mean we hung out a lot. But once he brought D&D back, it was just like go time. So my first time playing D&D was a one-on-one session. And everything about it sticks in my memory as far as like, well, not everything. I know I had to go to a place and do a thing, but the aspect of the cave system that he sent me Mm. through like the first room had this like pit in the middle and there was a strong wind coming from it yeah and eventually i made it to the end and got the uh mcguffin and he was like okay you got the mcguffin you didn't check for traps because you know new player and everything so the cave starts to rumble and you can see like stalactites starting to fall and everything's starting to collapse and i was like oh no i'm gonna go not the way i came let me go this way And he's like, okay, you come to a room where you see another pit in the floor and there's a strong gust of wind. I was like, I jump in. And that was just a wind elevator to that first room. I ran out. It was a cliffside. I had to jump out. And then like everything kind of collapsed as I was jumping out. He's like, okay, you're like 60 feet in the air. What do you want to do? You're just going to fall? I was like, no, I'm going to take my grappling hook. I'm going to try to throw it and hit the cliff edge. He's like, okay, go for it. I nailed it. He's like, all right, give me a strength check. Yeah, back then, well, it was 3.5. Yeah. So I don't think it was a strength check necessarily. I had to make a check. Let's just leave it at that Uh because I can't remember all those edition rules and everything. The books are a reference to me when it comes down to it. But I halfway successfully, because I got the grappling hook on there and was able to hold on while also kind of like pulling my character's arm out of socket. A little bit of graphic there. Sorry, you know. 
But nonetheless, it was successful in the end of it. And that was my introduction to tabletop role-playing games. And from there, I met friends in high school. We played things. My second, well, my second time playing overall was with some friends doing the old school Star Wars role-playing game. The one that was kind of like keyed off of, it was a D20 system, kind of similar to 3.5. So we played through that. We did some Vampire the Masquerade. We played some D20 Modern. So that was all through high school. And honestly, I DM'd a lot back then. And that's kind of when I got my feet wet into DMing because my older brother did such a good job at it at the times that we played that I was just like, that's, I want to do that. I want to facilitate that kind of experience for people. Slowly but surely, I found myself becoming the forever DM, except for, you know, I, my friends were friends. So I was like, hey, could I not? And they were just like, yes. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yeah. After hearing about your first experience, I can definitely see the influences in some of the really intricate and interesting dungeons you send your players through for Bombarded. So, and I love a good little dungeon crawl with a bunch of weird puzzles too. So I don't know. There's, there's just something so quintessentially D&D about it that uh, really warms my heart. So that's awesome. So do you remember the first game you ran for people? And if so, do you remember what it was like and kind of how it went? I don't remember the very first one, but there's one that sticks in my memory where it was, we used to just meet up on Friday nights after we got off work and it was usually like 10 or 11. And I just kind of, you know, pulled things out of thin air is what I did a lot back in the day because we lived in a in a country town about like 45 minutes outside of DFW. So we had one comic yeah. book shop that opened up when I was growing up. And I, you know, I was a kid. I didn't have much money and didn't even really know what I was looking for. So like modules, things like that, I never had growing up or never obtained for myself growing up. So a lot of it was all homebrew stuff. One thing I did, and I remember my first D&D book was 3.5 Monster Manual 2. That's the only book I remember having before I got the player's handbook and then eventually the DM's guide. But yeah, and I was I worked out of that one as far as my monsters go. And I remember I did something about my players being in this town. There was a mansion on the hill and it was like weird stuff was going on up there. What's going on up there? Weird stuff. Go check it out and see what's going on because it's freaking out the townspeople. So they went up there. I did a lot of allusion to like vampires and there's this family, this undead family that's trying to be brought back by some of these cult members. And eventually one of the pets of the vampires was trying to be summoned like, you know, like, oh, Fluffy, the, the vampire's pet. And I can't even remember the monster that it was right offhand, but it was summoned and the players were there to witness and they got swallowed in like this abyss or this vortex. But when they came to, I did, you know, it wasn't like, okay, you're dead. Congratulations. No, when they came to, they were in like a, a hospital in that town. And they were telling like the caretaker, they were like, yeah, we were up there doing this. And the caretaker's like looking at this other, you know, caretaker like weird. And they're just like, what's going on? And they were like, that mansion hasn't been up there for 50 years. And that was kind of one of the first campaigns where like we ended the night with that and my players were just like, what? And yeah, so that's one of the first camp, not campaigns, but one of the first sessions I remember running where I got my players invested and I got them. They were just jaw dropped by the end. 
I was like, okay, I need to do more of that. I love a good cliffhanger. There's nothing better, especially as a DM, when you just like set it up and it goes off perfectly. You're like, oh, yeah, I don't know. And mm-hmm. it, it keeps them coming back for more. And, and you know, when, when you end the session and everyone's like, oh, and then they just spend like five, ten minutes talking about it and like theorizing and trying to figure out what you're going to do next. Oh, so fun. We would stay up to like three, four o'clock in the morning back in those days. There's a restaurant down here called Chicken Express. They have awesome sweet tea. We would take one of those Gatorade five-gallon coolers, go up there. They would fill it for us, and that was what we would drink on for the night. So spend all night doing that. Yeah, hopefully you get to do that again soon. Yeah. All right. What about your past experiences and your personality, do you think, really led to you or or kind of drew you to the DM's role? I I know you talked about your brother and having that good memory with him, but being a DM, it it just kind of takes a specific, uh, a little bit of je ne sais quoi, you know? So like, what do you think it is that kind of led you to it? You know, in my time as a youth, I enjoyed a lot of chaos. And I think I'm going to leave that statement at that. The chaos that players can bring to the table is always exciting. And it gets me thinking, it's like, okay, they're going to do this. I have no idea how I'm going to react to it, but I'm excited to where it could lead. And I think that aspect of players really catching you off guard and bringing something that you could never in a million years imagine that they do, even with all the times I've spent thinking like, okay, they could do A, they could do B, they could do C. They're doing a letter that's not even on the alphabet. And it's a beautifully frustrating thing. And I don't want to say frustrating as in like it doesn't make me want to do it, but it's just like, okay, I need to process but we're at the table, so what am I going to do? And yeah, uh, it's a curveball you got to deal with immediately. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I'm not even going to say I bat a thousand on those. Like I have definitely whiffed here and there, and it's you know it's one of those things where you go back and you're like, ah, I could have done this with it. Yeah, you know what? You got to lay in the bed you make. You do. Just as an aside, do you have an example of a time where players just like? totally caught you off guard and what you did that made it really awesome i'm trying to think because i in in the past couple of years the one of the main campaigns that i had finished was in uh in off the books uh tomb of annihilation and Uh, i had players that they were resourceful they were very thought out and meticulous and uh you have to be for tomb of annihilation yeah, yeah. I, i'll be honest i will probably never run that campaign again that was <laughs> brutal because we wanted to do the hex crawl and everything like that i think the thing is that it tested me on being able to create a balanced encounter and yeah. that was the hardest thing because i remember like it was a party of six they had well at the time it was like barbarian sorcerer paladin cleric monk and oh gosh i can't even remember all of it because well honestly by this point there were just so many different characters that had come and gone in the process of it but like i i set up the whole zombie t-rex and everything it's gonna you know spew out the zombies as it goes and the the monk just went through and bap 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 stunned and was rolling phenomenally and i was just like okay, what can I do about this? What, like, how can I make this more challenging? And I I think there was an aspect where eventually I was just like, you know what? I don't have to. 
it was frustrating in the moment. I know, like, it, I remember it because in the moment I was kind of like, I was a little bit dismayed because I thought to myself, I was like, that was too easy for them. And I felt like I had mm-hmm. done a bad job. But I think in retrospect, like not fighting it, not going against what was happening or trying to figure out a way to up the challenge in the moment, I I think it allowed them to have the fun that they would want to have. And I think that was kind of kind of one of the keys for me realizing is like, you know what, if the dice go that way, you just need to you need to not worry about whether it was challenging. You don't need to worry about what the perceived expectation is of an encounter that more or less should be challenging. But if they knock it out, let them knock it out. Let them just go for it. And I like I know you were asking about something that I felt like I handled well, and I gave you an example where I didn't handle it well. But this is called how not to DM. So It is. I want to tell you like if you find yourself at the holding, you know, the bad end of the stick on something, don't beat yourself up on it because that's what I did. I beat myself up on it. And then now it's like, if my players knock it out of the park, heck yeah, that's awesome. I'm glad you got there. You know, it can be fuel for your fire to figure out something that will challenge them without it being heavy handed, without it being a forceful thing. You can find it. Right. It's out there. You just you just got to have those moments that shape and mold you to think in different ways. Yeah, I think it's a mistake when people think they're supposed to punish mm-hmm. their players for having done something awesome or creative like that. So I'm glad you were able to kind of mentally get to the point where you're like, hey, you know what? This is the point, right? Like th- this this person built this character to do this thing, to do these stunning strikes. You know, that's that's like, yeah, that's why you play control. a monk, you know? So you've got to give them what they're due when, when they start rolling well, because that's why they do it. Exactly. So, I, love I it. think after that, one of my moments was I knew there was a cleric in the party and I set them up for like, I think they had just left the heart in the middle of Chult and they were still able to fly because they had done the ritual at where the Aarakocra were. So like they f- flew and I was like, okay, you see like a horde of zombies coming out of the jungle as you get towards the edge of it. And the cleric's like, y'all want to dip down and fight? And everyone's like, sure. Cleric dipped down there. Divine, well, channel divinity just wasted the entire group. And I was like, I know they're going to go for it. Let's give them that moment where they can just shine. Their character gets to shine because that's what they're made for. Yeah, I love it. Okay, so you kind of mentioned you had the thought like, man, did I screw this up? Was this a bad encounter design? So let's let's talk more about your bad experiences. So what are some of the mistakes you feel like you've made or and they can be like overarching mistakes, they can be specific mistakes that are good examples of how not to DM. And also they can be old or more recent. Back in the day in high school, I would typically set my players up in a bad situation. Like that's how we would start campaigns and you know, there's a lot of very uncouth setups and jokes that, you know, we would do. We were young and it was funny at the time, but now it's kind of just like demeaning or demoralizing to the player and I would never do something like that I wouldn't unless I had talked to them about beforehand you know I think one of the mistakes I made when I played as a younger player and even as a more recent player was not doing session zeros not checking in with my players and making sure that understanding what they wanted to get out of the game I mean I think we did two session zeros essentially for bombarded to get prepared for it 
And I still feel like I beefed it a little bit by not asking them questions that I would ask now. So I feel like, you know, talking with your players about what they're wanting to get out of this experience and what they're okay with checking in on them. You know, there has been a lot of there's been a lot of situations in recording Bombarded where something's happened. Somebody's not comfortable. We go back and we change it. I don't want to say that I didn't have a respect for my friends or the people that I played with, but you can always have more respect for them because it's not just your time. Yes, DMs put a lot of time into it, but everyone's putting time into the game. Everyone's coming to the table and nobody deserves to be diminished or demoralized for the sake of whatever the DM may feel is right. Conversely to that, then, what are some of your favorite things that you've done or favorite moments from gameplay that are still, you know, epic moments you talk about today? Well, that one story I told earlier, I love telling that story about them, like finding out that twist. And I believe we carried on and uh, they actually wound up finding a way to get back up on that hill and kind of dig up the underground site that they had found themselves in before the time jump that I did, which I guess I like time jump Uh things according to Bombarded. Yeah, I guess you do. (laughs) But I mean, in Bombarded, like just letting doing the rule of cool, finding moments for that, like Razzle turning into that giant toad and Yashi and Randy riding on him and then barreling their way through that collapsing city. That sticks out to me in such a major way, just because it's like, yeah, do it. Let's go for it. Letting your players roll with an idea and. I don't want to stop them from doing it or keep, I don't want to keep them from doing it. I want them to try. And if you can think about a mechanic or something that aids that, like, well, I can't say anything because we just recorded it on Saturday, so I don't want to spoil anything. (laughs) But, you know, when the players throw out like, hey, I want to try this, finding that way to allow them to attempt to do it, whether you're doing like just a straight check on wisdom or charisma That is something that I've gained over the four years we've been doing the show. One thing that stands out to me that isn't just me doing it, it was my players as well, was at the Bicentennial. Spoilers if you haven't listened to the show. Yeah, spoilers. Randy goes and he does the the caper, or he's going to stop the caper with Eggs Quackly. (laughs) And then Yashi and, and, well, Razzle didn't get arrested. Yashi got arrested, but doing that and working right. with it and then being able to like letting that happen allowed me to work with so much, like throwing in the Inquisitor and throwing in some of the aspects of, you know, what they were wanting to know about James Vandersneak or what they could allude to to give my players information and give them knowledge that they didn't have before, kind of rewarding that spirit of getting into trouble. I would always encourage players to just find a way to get into trouble and, you know, hopefully your DM's going to let you, is going to find a way for it to work in your advantage while also there, you know, the give and take of it all. Yeah. I got to ask, was the time jump planned or was it something you came up with only like a few sessions before it happened? I came up with it about an hour and a half before we recorded. Because, well, we, you know, <laughs> they give it. me the lyrics and then I have to consider it. And, you know, I had, I think I had sat on the lyrics for maybe a few days and I was sitting there and I was like, 
I was talking with Allie. We were uh, in our bedroom and everything, just chatting about the song. And I was looking over the lyrics and I was like, oh my God, it makes so much <laughs> sense. And I'm very open when, when something's going to get off the rails a little bit. I let them know like, hey, something could happen. It's going to be okay. Just trust me. It's going to be okay. We'll be fine. You don't have to worry about it too much. And then that natural one that happened on that role, that was, I, I was just like, man, I wish we were at a table together because that's when we had started recording remotely. I was like, it's it's right there on a D100. Right. I rolled a one. And I think that kind of gave me the the go ahead to just say, move forward with it. Do it. Some Sometimes going over things at that last minute, you know, at the 11th hour, it's you'll find gold in those hills sometimes. There's gold in them hills, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, who do you feel like are some of the greatest influences on how you run your own games? And again, they can be older examples or more recent examples of people that you really look up to and try to emulate. Well, I still play with my older brother. I recently, we he's been running a campaign with a, with a few people he met at Reaper up in Denton, Reaper uh, Miniatures. Their manufacturing plant and store is just, uh, you know, about an hour and a, or about a 45 minutes away from me. So they were playing up there. I joined them. He was running Tomb of Annihilation at the same time I was. And I dipped in for one session. But then he's been doing a homebrew thing with them as well. And I got to get in on that. Yeah. So still my older brother is a fantastic role model for me on that and how to how to handle things. Of course, having listened to a lot of DMs like through podcasts or streaming. I mean, you got to name the big ones. You got to name Matt Mercer. I mean, of course, Brennan Lee Mulligan. I've recently started really following the stuff that's happening on Dimension 20. Like, I'm keeping up with Starstruck right now. His way of handling things is already influencing me, where I'm worried about, like, oh, that's a very, you know, Brennan Lee Mulligan thing to do. <laughs> even in these last, even in these like recent recordings that we've been doing, I'm just like, you know what? He has such fun with it. Like, I would like to emulate an aspect of that. I mean, Griffin McElroy from the, uh, you know, the Adventure Zone is one. Reed from the Sneak Attack podcast. I wondered He's if that's fantastic. where you got the time jump stuff from. Because I was like, hmm. And not to like discount from your show at all, but there's been a few times where you've been playing and I've been listening and I'm like, that, like, I can see influences and I don't know if they're actually influences, but I bet that Kyle has listened to Sneak Attack before. So, oh yeah, you can you confirm oh, yeah. my my conspiracy? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, listening to I, I know you had Josh on here yep. as well. Yep. Listening to Titans of Altera, you know Josh is a fantastic oh, guy. I love so, chatting with him when I get so the opportunities. Awesome. Yeah. So you know, listening to Renee Rhodes and Celeste Conowich, Victoria Rogers, like from the Broadswords. All of them have such a unique take, flavor, way of presenting things that sometimes I feel like I just want to be an amalgamation of all of the people I listen to, all of the people I meet. Russ Moore from Dungeons and Dragons, he's a lot of fun to play with. I've been guesting on his show quite a bit recently mm -hmm. as, a, as a protagonist. No, antagonist, that's the right word. So, you know, getting to see how he, dms and how all of them kind of run their table it's it's just like a little bit of a smorgasbord i'm like i want a little bit of this a little bit of that it's like the golden corral of dms <laughs> i love it but really really good really good food yeah yeah it's like a vegas buffet of dms 
<laughs> yes. Yes. All you can eat, and it's great. Yeah. Or Texas barbecue. Hey, now we're talking. Yeah. Now we're talking. I, I got some family in San Antonio, and we visited them last summer. I saw a huge Bucky's, so I got that reference. And yep, I had some smoke or torchies. Had some torchies. Oh yeah, gotta get torchies. Yeah, it was a good time. This episode of How Not to DM is brought to you by Gemmed Firefly. Need a fresh new look for the new year? Head on over to GemmedFirefly.com for the newest tees, mugs, and home goods styled with D and D gamer humor and aesthetics. As always, Gemmed Firefly makes every shirt to order, bringing you all of the softest and most comfortable shirts that thousands have come to love. And now, listeners of the show get a discount when you use the code DRAGON at checkout. Find your new favorite shirt at GemmedFirefly.com. And next, a word from my friend John at Tale of the Manticore. Are you looking for a D&D podcast with a dark side? Something more like Game of Thrones and less like Monty Python? Tale of the Manticore is part dark fantasy audio drama, part solo D&D RPG. There's no plot armor here. The dice make all the important decisions. Join me as I resurrect the excitement, wonder, and emotion of old school D&D. Made for a mature audience, Tale of the Manticore is both a fiction and a game. It's the story where chaos rolls. And now, let's return to the show, starting up with a brand new minigame for Season 2. Welcome to Quickfire Chaos! This week on Quickfire Chaos, I'm going to throw some random pop artists Kyle's way, and he's going to tell me what race and class they would play in a game of D&D. So, first one, we got to start with him. We're going to say David Bowie. What, what do you think? Oh, David Bowie. I feel like, I mean, of course, you know, since they're all musicians, I'm going to try to stray away from them just being bards. Maybe they just have a I few th- levels, right? Just like your players do. Yeah, yeah. We'll say obligatory bardness for these people, but I feel like David Bowie would be a celestial druid of the stars. Ooh, I love it. I think I think that's what I would go with. He's a star man, after all. He's a star man. I love it. Absolutely. <laughs> nice. Yeah, Ziggy Stardust, he's totally a druid. You're right. Okay. I, yeah. Amazing. Okay, the Beatles. And you could just pick oh. one, or you could pick one for each of them. I think I'd go with George Harrison. And he'd probably be a, I think he'd be a half-elf monk of the, what is it, the the, the Fist of the Sun? Yeah. Is that it? Yeah, because of his Hare Krishna affiliations. Yeah, yeah perfect. Absolutely. <laughs> Love yeah. it. And yeah, he wrote Here Comes the Sun. Yeah, yeah, yeah I believe so. Did. Yeah. Sweet. Love it. Okay, Stevie Nicks. Stevie Nicks. Oh, Stevie Nicks. Also, I a lot of like these are old, so apologies to the listeners who don't know who these people are, but I like old, old music, so get Same used to here, it. and it gives your listeners an opportunity to go and look up these artists True. and find their wonderful music. I think Stevie Nicks would probably be an elven. I think she'd just be straight bard, honestly. Yeah. Just like, you know, and full, full on entertainment background. I actually got to see Fleetwood Mac a couple years ago. Really? And... They still laid it. I, they, they didn't have Lindsey Buckingham with them, 
but they still delivered a great show. I just remember having a good time. Me, Ali, a couple of friends of ours went, and it was, my jaw was dropped. I was just like, dang. That's awesome. That's so cool. Yeah. My famous claim to fames for old school music is I got to see Paul McCartney here in Utah, and then uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire was pretty fun too, as far as like, oh, heck yeah. Like musicians that are still rocking today. Okay, Rivers Cuomo. Rivers Cuomo from Weezer, right? I'm I I'm not much of a Weezer listener. Okay, we can skip it if you want. I'll, I'll you know what? I'll take a jab at it. I feel like Rivers Cuomo might be a you know I'm gonna go for it. I'm gonna say Tiefling Warlock. Does that seem right? I I think he's probably sold his soul to someone to write all those catchy you know, books. You know, I would think so. You got to do something to just deliver out those those kind of bangers. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right, Bob Marley. Bob Marley. Oh, I feel like Bob Marley would be a Ganassi of some type. Yeah, maybe maybe like an air Ganassi, very, or maybe a water Ganassi. You know what? I'll leave it open. I'll leave it open to Ganassi, and I would think that he would be a be a ranger, just like you know, kind of scouting out you know the forefront. Because I know a lot of a, a lot of his music kind of paved away for things going into ska and, you know, that whole genre and everything that led down the line from it. So, yeah, I'm going to go with a Ganassi Ranger. Yeah, I love it. All right, the last one is Beyonce. Ooh. Oh, that's putting me on the spot. Is it Queen Bee? I, I got to <laughs> tread tread carefully here. Yes, you um, don't want to get the beehive mad. <laughs> I do not want to get the beehive mad. You're absolutely right. I wonder what the Venn diagram of my show listeners and, and Beyonce fans is, though. I, I don't know. I'm just saying, <laughs> like, you, you might be okay. <laughs> all right. Well, all right. Cool, cool, cool. Then, I mean, I'm going to have to probably go with, there's so many races now that I'm trying to think about them oh, all. So many. And I don't. I don't want to lean on, you know, of course, being a queen, like, I'll probably just go Celestial again. Yeah. Probably say Celestial, and since since she's Queen Bee, Druid. Yeah. Just Druid. Just able to summon all the bees. <laughs> Get <laughs> so, the beehive going. Yeah. Isn't there, like, a, a Swarm Druid or something like that? Swarm Druid. There something we go. Like, it, I don't fans, remember its name, but swarm. it does, like, they, they do, like, Swarm stuff. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I guess the Wu-Tang Clan could also be Swarm Druids. Uh, All right. (laughs) Enough of that. True, 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 true. (laughs) Okay. So let's switch gears here and talk about your show, Bombarded. So tell us what is Bombarded? Where did the idea come from? And how did it kind of start? So Elevator Pitch, Bombarded is the band Linby from DFW playing an all-bard cast, well, hybrid bard cast, but they're all bards. We write a song every episode by rolling dice that have chords on them to dictate what chords we can use in the song that is written specifically for in-game canon. Now, these songs can be just, I want to write a song to entertain somebody, or more often than not, I want to write a jingle for a business to get free stuff. (laughs) That's happened too. But also there is a magical aspect where they can... Through what I've called their musico-magical abilities, I believe that's a word that I've created. I love language and getting to do that. It's fun. But they are able to literally will the world around them with the possibility of failure and also maybe to their detriment if it does fail. 
they can will the world around them to do what the lyrics in the song say. So we do that every episode. We're, you know, you're going to get a song every episode in the show. And it started originally, we were playing around the table. And when we first started, we were doing a little weekend getaway where we all we all went over to Spurrier's parents' house while they were out of town. And we just spent the weekend kind of locked up playing video games, playing D&D and writing music because this is when we were still like playing live around DFW and trying to come up with albums. So we started playing D&D. I was only familiar with 3.5. I've actually never played 4E, so I have no opinion about it. I hear a lot of things, but I'm not going to say anything because I don't know. <laughs> I do hear some things I'd like to take from it, like, you know, as far as, you know, the uh, the the one hit point. Yeah, the minions. The minions, yeah. yes. That is a rule that I think I will adapt maybe at some point just in my own running of a table. but Totally useful, yeah. Yeah, so we played 3.5 there, and then we stopped, and it was a while before we got to play again. And, of course, we're all busy adulting, working, doing our thing. So we only really got to play once a month after that. And at a certain point, I I was like, okay, 5E's out. I went to my local comic book store. I checked out the book and, you know, got it. And I was like, okay, cool. I took all their character sheets, ported them over. And we started playing once a month. And Spurrier, our pianist and Randy Greentrees, played a bard. I feel bad about this. And this is a thing that I don't think I would ever do again. But because they had never played, I kind of like crafted a story and a backstory for their characters. Like, hey, here's something to help you get into it because I know you're new and I want to give you a little bit of direction or something you could work off of. So I kind of had pre-made characters for them and handed them that. So Spurrier was playing a bard, and we had a, I believe it's called a kalimba. It's a little thumb piano. Mm -hmm. And I had one of those that Goodrich had gotten me from when he and his wife had gone on their anniversary, or it might have been their honeymoon, to Hawaii. But they brought brought me one back. And so while we were at the table, Spurrier was playing on the little thumb piano for all of his bardic songs. And Goodrich was kind of like, oh, man, that's so great. What if we just, like, what if we were all bards playing? And then we all kind of looked at each other like, <laughs> what if we were all bards playing together? And this was when we had started getting into listening to Taz. So we were just like, okay, but like, could this work? Yeah. And again, coming from 3.5, where bards were not looked favorably upon, I was like, I don't know if people want this. <laughs> I don't know if people deserve this. Like, as in, it, it seems like, Kind of one of those things, knowing what I knew about bards and realizing like all the tropes and stereotypes about them uh-huh. more so in the negative side than what could be positive. I was like, OK, well, I, you know, if we're going to try this, I, you know, I'll, I'll start thinking about something and we'll start figuring things out. You know, like I said, we did a couple a couple of zero sessions just to do like proof of concept. Actually, you're going to like this because one of our zero sessions we recorded, I don't know if we have that content. We probably do, knowing Good Rich and his his ability to like catalog and archive things. We probably have it out there where I literally ran a scenario from a recent episode of Sneak Attack that I had heard. It was an episode where the the group was traveling along the side of the road and there was a broken down cart and a girl was crying and like their brother had gone off in the woods. I think they fought a shambling mound in that scenario. I just took that. I was like, you know what? I need something quick just to like record. I'm going to steal that and use it. And that's actually where Joby was born. Oh. (laughs) Because 
Randy was like, well, I'm going to steal the little girl's teddy bear. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> cool. So when we actually got around to the table, he asked me, he's like, you know, can I, do I still have that teddy bear? I was like, dude, if you want that teddy bear, you can have that teddy bear. It's very inconsequential to me. So yeah, that was, uh, you know, that's kind of how it got started was just like kind of a joke. And then kind of like, we were all kind of getting tired of playing like local shows, not because we don't love them. Like I love playing live. I miss it. I, you know, we would play a lot of a lot of dive bars mm. and you know some better venues as well. But there is a there's a grungy side to me that enjoys a good dive bar oh, yeah. every once in a while. But you know, we were playing at like eleven, eleven thirty, sometimes midnight, and we were just like, All right, well, kind of done doing that. And we wanted to find something else. We were looking towards other other avenues of how to bring our music to people, and this just seemed like a like a good fit. We looked around, we were like, we don't really see anybody else doing this concept short of, I mean, the only other thing that at the time that I can remember being around was Sirens of the Realm, but it wasn't the exact same thing where we were doing the mechanic of rolling the dice and figuring out the drums and all of that stuff. Right. So that was kind of the, kind of what kicked everything off is like, cool, we can make music, we can put it out there. We wanted to go more online with our music anyway, and this seemed like the venue to do it. Yeah. A couple of really cool things about the show. Number one, episodes are an hour-ish, never much longer than that, so easy to binge. Mm -hmm. Number two, relatively kid-friendly if you're trying to listen with little ones around. Number three, you've released all of the songs as albums, and you've also released all of the background music as soundtracks and anyone can go listen to that stuff so that's been a lot of fun too a couple of my favorite songs i think my two most favorite songs are after the bearberry fiasco oh yeah the, the, the <laughs> one song that, that randy and yashi sing gives me a lot of fleet foxes vibes i loved it mm -hmm. and then razzle's solo song also super super good but yeah just like yeah it's such a funny thing that you, you captured this lightning in a bottle of writing these songs and you all being so, so adept at it just has added that layer onto what is already a, a fun story that just makes it so much more interesting and fun. So yeah, I've, I've loved Thanks. the show so far. Yeah. I appreciate that. I do. We, we have a lot of fun doing it. So yeah, I, I can tell it, you can tell definitely my, one of my patrons, Matthew wanted to ask, when you were getting started, were you concerned about balance with having each of your players having some levels in Bard? Were there times where you realized you could or couldn't do things because all of them were fairly charismatic as far as, you know, the, the mechanics of the game go? Anything like that that you had to consider? Well, the balance aspect, that's that's one of the reasons why I decided to have them have their own backstory and those three levels in their other class was just to you know, I, I mean, of course, there's the background aspect. You can just have that and start with level one. But I did want them to have some diversity. I did want them to be able to pull something else outside of what they would be able to bring as a bard. Not that, you know, the, the literal jack of all trades couldn't probably handle some <laughs> situations. But yeah, I, I, I wanted them to be able to have their own flavor before they got to the college part of, uh, of their subclasses. And as far as the, the charisma goes, you know, I, I never really felt at a disadvantage necessarily because like that's 
I feel like that's just part and parcel. You got to take that with, it comes with the territory as far as bards go. If they're, you know, if they're willing to put in the points to charisma, like I know they don't all have the same charisma. They, they made their characters based off of their primary class. And then the only thing was like making sure they had the prerequisite set up. So, you know, like I believe Razzle started off with a much higher charisma than Randy and Yashi. And so it kind of did allow them to step into those individual roles without it being too, you know, too heavy handed right off the bat. So there were probably concerns whenever I first started planning and thinking about things. And I know when I first started, like I wrote significantly different for the podcast, how I write now. Yeah. Because originally it was like, I'm going to write a D&D campaign. Like I would write any other D&D campaign. And when you are recording something and you're trying to fit within a, a certain amount of time, what you need to get done, you've got you to pivot. You've got to adjust and adapt. And I would say I've done my process differently three or four different times over the course of this show. Things have changed. Now, that doesn't mean you can't dip back into the sauce you were using before and be like, oh, well, you know, like with the Tomb of the Diz, that was when I was like, okay, this is how I would write like back then. But along the way, I also gained experience that made that aspect of writing that arc better Yeah, for the show. Awesome. Speaking of kind of naming and that kind of thing, uh, what have been, so something that you've done that's really fun is put little Easter eggs in the show. Like there are some people whose names are, are puns for musicians or songs or things like that. So are there mm-hmm. any puns or Easter eggs that have come up in the show that your players didn't catch live on air or that maybe people might have missed so far? There's probably a handful of them, but the main one I think about is the Stry Desert. Yeah. Because what's in a desert? Sand. So you have Stry Sands. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Got to get that one in. I'm a big fan of a band called Ween, which Mm. W-E-E-N. Are you familiar? I'm familiar. I, I'm not a fan per se, but I know I've heard of them. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. If you don't know who they are, if you know Ocean Man from the SpongeBob movie, that's Ween. But the town in the Stry Desert, Basem, is actually a song, is actually inspired from a song called Back to Basem. And there's a character in that arc, one of the one of the daughters that was out at the meteor strike who happened to lose a leg who was a dancer, there's a lyric in that song that's like, just like the dancer who had lost her leg. So I pulled that lyric and put it into the story because I was like, why not? Just go for it. Yeah. I'll be honest, like, Basim has always been like, what? Like, that sounds familiar to me, but I don't know why. And I was mm-hmm. trying to figure it out. So that makes sense. Some of my favorites, uh, I even DM'd you when I listened to this episode just because it was so funny, was a uh, Hank the Hill Giant yeah. So uh, you did a great Hank Hill for that one. So if anybody out there is listening to to the, the show, then when you happen upon that episode, you'll know what I'm talking about. Oh, uh, so good. There was also uh, the person who taught them about modes in at the Bicentennial, the Bicentennial, the guy on the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Soli. He was an Aragonasi named Soli Airy, which is named after Soli Airy, which is, yeah, yeah. So they're they're all over the, I'd have to honestly listen back to double check on all the ones that I might have dropped that I didn't even check. I mean, I I think it got acknowledged right off the bat whenever I talked about the moon, uh, you know, Brubeck and Themarcells, because the red moon is Brubeck, which did an album, I think it was 
it's red hot and something and now red hot and jazz i don't know i can't remember because it's been so long since i thought about it <laughs> yeah but then there's the blue moon the marcells which there's a band the band the marcells that did the song blue moon yeah soccer fans will will be familiar with that song so that's funny. I didn't know there was a an album by was is it the Dave Brubeck Quartet that mm. did that album or is this a band called Brubeck? No, I it is the Dave Brubeck Quartet. I have to admit I'm only familiar with Take 5, but that's okay. All right. That's okay. That's a good one to be familiar with. It is. It is. We we played it in jazz band I think when I was in like ninth grade or something. Oh yeah. Yeah. Same here. Played it in community college jazz band. Classic. All right. Oh yeah. So what's the division of labor like? with the show like Bombarded. We've mentioned you record, you write songs, you know, you've got to edit the show to release it. And I know the the show releases on a every two weeks cadence. So that at least gives you time to kind of get stuff done. But yeah, how do you all kind of share the load of the show to make sure that you don't get burned out? Well, this is one of the things that I've come to terms with that normally the DM does the brunt of the work yeah. at a D&D table. That's not the case with Bombarded. Goodrich and Spurrier put in so many behind-the-scene hours that I originally, when I started, I was like, oh, yeah, I'll edit. I'll do what Griffin McElroy did, and I'll edit it and come up with music and everything. And I'm glad they didn't let me do yeah. that because I probably would have broke at some point. Yeah. And also, when you think about it, it's like, why would I do that when Goodrich has a degree in like sound engineering and Spurrier has a degree in computer in music composition? Like, why wouldn't I use those or why wouldn't we use those? You know, and Allie does a lot of great work doing uh, taking care of our website and uh, making sure like fan art gets put up and, you know, running that side of of what is bombarded. And that frees me up to just worry about the session, mm-hmm. worry about planning for the session and getting things ready. Everyone puts in a lot of really good work. And I know Spurrier and Goodrich, they are looking forward to a well-deserved break when the campaign ends. Yeah, we'll talk about that in just a sec. Speaking of the break you've got looking or that you're looking forward to, what is the future of Bombarded? Uh, as of recording, you've got a few more episodes left. I don't know if you know the exact number, but it's coming close to the end here. Yeah, what are your plans after that? Breaks, new content, new show? You know, we're rolling the ball around a lot on this. Because we've been going strong for four years and we're seeing a light at the end of the tunnel, we probably have one episode left to record, which we may do over two sessions. Yeah. We're like there, pretty much. It's just, you know, gotta put the bow on it, which is exciting and sad and... I have a lot of feelings. I'm sure. It's going to be nice to be done with it. I'm going to miss it. I'm going to miss their characters so much. I'm going to miss the process of doing it. But honestly, we have not landed on anything specific for the future for us yet. There's a lot of ideas in the air, and there's a lot of things that we have talked about, how we could approach it differently or how we could do, you know, little one-offs here and there that still feature, you know, chaos sauce or doing like short-form short form story arcs and things like that but we have not landed on anything specific as far as that goes so it's still kind of all up in the air there but you know i think i think with the with being able to say hey you know we've we've closed the book on this story and we're done with the process of the process of actually producing and putting the show out 
would probably bring bring some clarity as to what we want to do, what's feasible, what is responsible mm. in consideration of how we did how how we've done this campaign. It's tricky when you've done something so unique as you've done here. You can't just say, well, we're going to do another campaign exactly like this, right? Because, you know, right. it, it's it's been done and, you know, you've you've put in all that work. So, yeah, it, it is tricky. I was talking to Goodrich about this when I was messaging him and I mentioned and he said, you guys have already kind of discussed this. I love the parts where you learn or where the players learn a new a new thing as part of the music theory that they're learning as bards. And I said to him, if you just like listen to albums and then broke down each song, I would listen to that all day, you know, but of course it takes a lot of work to do it. And you have to, you know, you'd have to figure out how to do the music. Like you just tell people to go listen to it and hope they do. And then come listen to you breaking it down or would you have to get the rights? Anyway, it's, it's kind of messy, but there's, there's a lot of different ways you could go. And I'm, I'm really excited to see what you land on. To that idea, I I believe the name of the podcast is called Hooked on Pop. Oh, they do it. Yeah, and it's a musicologist and I believe a composer, and they talk about current pop songs and the music theoriness of them and how what they do in those songs really like hook you and bring you in. And they make comparisons to, you know, classical literature, if I'm not mistaken. I believe it's called Hooked on Pop. All right. But no, that doesn't mean that, you know, something similar or adjacent couldn't be done that is more, maybe more accessible. I know, yeah. I, I don't think they do it in a way that wouldn't in, entice or bring in anybody that's outside of the realm of understanding music theory or musicology. But, you know, I'm sure there's a more, it, it, there's always a way you could make something more accessible or be able to bring more people into the fold, whether it's because if they're just talking about it, cool. But if they're talking and teaching, that's another thing. Yeah. Well, like when Spurrier's playing all the different licks on the piano, I'd like I said, I'd listen to that all day. Yeah. And he was just telling me, and this is this and this is this. And I'm like, ah, yes, yes, I recognize all of these things. So yeah, it's right. cool. Okay. So you donate a percentage of your ad and patron money to local charities. How did you kind of decide to do this and what have been some of the great things you've seen happen as a result? And just as an aside, after you guys, well, after I got to the point in the show where you started doing this, I decided to follow suit. So thank you for the inspiration. And yeah, uh, and, uh, yeah it's, it's, I don't know, it, it really is, you know, I don't rely on the money from the show. And so it's good to give something back where I can. So appreciate the inspiration. Absolutely. And, you know, thank you for being inspired and thank you for giving back. It really kind of started off when everything with George Floyd happened. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that kind of kicked off everything. And we were like, you know, it's obvious where music in our culture has really come from. There's a lot of roots in, you know, in, in black music and everything that's come from that, that we can't ignore. It's been a huge influence on on us as musicians and how we approach making music and the influences that we have. It is all steeped in that culture, doing these donations and being able to give to underserved communities within our area or beyond. I believe it's a reward in and of itself, especially focusing it towards music or, you know, uh, touching on things that are currently happening as well, such as the legislation that's recently happened within Texas as far as like the trans community. Mm -hmm. We've decided to look into you know, as far as February and March goes, 
we're going to be doing 10%, an extra 10% from February, and then another 10 per, or then 10% of what March goes towards a, a trans organization that helps with legislation and the treatment of people in that community within Texas. So really when it comes down to it, we, we really want to put our music out there for everyone. We want to make sure that everyone has the opportunity to learn and be influenced or have music in their life. And if we're in the same boat as you were saying, where, you know, we don't rely on the podcast for a living. So the, the, the money that we make has definitely helped us out as far as gear, soundproofing rooms, getting everything ready for whenever we move to um, recording remotely. But being able to give back in that aspect, I'm sure there's some good that has come of it because it's just it's what we're hoping for. If anything, I think we've seen maybe more engagement, more people jumping on Patreon or more people actually paying for our albums uh-huh. on, uh, on over on Bandcamp because hopefully it has built trust with our community knowing that their part of their money is going to go to help people who need it. That's what we really want to get to is making sure that the music we make helps everybody in as many ways as possible. Definitely. Even though this is a little bit after, uh, like Kyle said, uh, the February and March donations, I will be putting links down in, in the episode notes for the charities that Bombarda chose to support in case you want to go uh, pitch some support towards them. And like I said, mm-hmm. the charity I support, which is called Encircle, you can go find more information about them in my episode notes. All right. My second to la- last question here is, what are your parting words of wisdom and encouragement for new and aspiring dungeon masters and game masters out there go out there and steal every bit of pop culture you can find and throw it Mm. in your campaigns you know how you get good at cooking you follow a recipe you know how you get better at cooking mixing recipes up go out there steal people's recipes and then mix them all together and make your own that's what i'm going to say the ooze arc that I did was inspired. I love telling this because it was inspired by an episode of Cowboy Bebop called Toys in the Attic. It's the one where like they get attacked by a little ooze and there's that purple blotch on their neck. And then like Spike oh. at the end is like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. No, I do that, remember this one. Yeah. Lobster or that Neptunian lobster <laughs> yes. that I left in the fridge back here in storage. That was the main inspiration for that entire arc. And then it just so happened that the uh, the last of us had come out and there was you know, kind of a, a zombie thing going on or a parasitic sort of thing going on. And that's Goodrich and Spurrier, I think, mentioned that, right. but I hadn't played it at the time. But uh, I knew I couldn't just do the ooze. So I was like, you know what? Let's have the ooze kind of, that's where it became a fungus. And so I had I had uh, stumbled across another pop culture thing by accident, but whatever, it worked out. I took a piece of pop culture and I was like, you know what? I love this. I want to do it. How can I make it mine? Yeah. So good. Yeah, the, I, I watched that show recently just because the live action one was coming out and I was like, people have talked about this for a long, long time. I should go see what it's about. So watch the anime. It is a fantastic anime for sure. And yeah, now that you mentioned that, I'm like, oh, totally. That's where it came from. And right. my campaigns are the same. I take bits and pieces from all of the different shows I listen to and movies I've watched, like especially weird old sci-fi movies that nobody else should ever watch. I, you know, I've got all these storylines to take from those. So yeah, uh, that's, that's, uh, it's great advice. And, and I love the recipe analogy too. go watch the mystery science theater 3000, have fun with it and say, what can I use? (laughs) Yes. So many ideas. 
Cool. All right. The last question is where can people find your works? You've got a lot of different stuff in a lot of different places on the internet. Talk us through it. Well, uh, you can find the podcast on most social medias at Bombarded Cast. If you want to see what people are saying about the show or posts that we've made, there's the hashtag Bardcast that we use. Our website's bombardedcast.com. And you can find all of the music we've released over at bandcamp.com forward slash bombardedcast. Or is it bombarded? Oh my gosh, I'm always so bad. I feel like we do bombarded cast on everything, so it should be that. Bombarded.bandcamp.com? That's it. Thank you so much, Derek. It's bombarded.bandcamp.com. I know my own podcast. But seriously, though, that's one of the areas. If you're looking for me personally, uh, I'm on Twitter at boognish underscore theory. That's B-O-O-G-N-I-S-H underscore theory. Like I mentioned earlier, I'm a, you know I'm a regular guest over at Dungeons and Dragons. So if you want to hear what I'm doing over there, uh, you'll have to listen through a good amount because Russ has weaved a really good story and. There's also some some time stuff going on there that's a lot of fun. So that's something else I'm doing. And I was streaming for a little while, but that's kind of on the back burner while we finish up the podcast. So other than that, not much. I mean, it's pretty much just bombarded and chilling with the Dungeons crew right now. I am on a thing over, there's a podcast called Critical Bits, and there's a short form season, or there's a short form story called Seasons that is really good. They got together like 16 different players and there's like four different storylines that they find their way together. It's really good. It's really good. I highly recommend it. Uh, There's a lot of fantastic players on there. Uh, You know, me aside, I I was just there having fun while they were doing a great job. So cool. Well, I'll have to get all those links from you. And again, put everything down below so you guys can go check out Kyle's appearances elsewhere, too. Well, thanks a ton for chatting with me, Kyle. It's been a lot of fun to get to know you better and to chat about Bombarded, chat about your DMing advice. And again, like I said, I'm excited to see what you all come up with next. Thanks. Appreciate you having me on, Derek. Thank you for listening to How Not to DM. Now it's time for a sneak peek into next week's guest, Enrique, better known as Newbie DM. There's a great section in the 4E DMG 2, and I think I want to say Robin Laws wrote it, and it's a section on player types and what each player type gets out of the game. And I think the best moments in the games come when you lean into those into those player types and afford the opportunity for each type of player to have a moment to shine. And when those moments happen, they usually tend to be the ones you remember and you speak about later, right? To hear more about Enrique's advice on running games and about how his blog started, tune in next week. Remember to check out my Patreon if you haven't already for even more sneak peeks. Next time you get the chance, share this episode with your friends and family around your game table. Another great way to help me boost the show is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or by rating the show on Spotify. I appreciate all of you for helping me grow. Thanks to the team at T4C Studios for helping edit and produce this episode. My new intro and outro music is by Daniel Zombo. The Quickfire Chaos music is by Exacat, and the Quickfire Chaos mood music is by Arcane Anthems. Check out the episode notes for more of their great work. And, as always, until next time, roll some nat 20s for me.